Chapter 3 of The Red Cross Girls with the Stars and Stripes. This is a LibreVox recording. All LibreVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibreVox.org. Read by Melissa MacArthur. The Red Cross Girls with the Stars and Stripes by Margaret Vandercook. Chapter 3 Somewhere in France. Through a countryside, somewhere in France, a long train was moving slowly. The journey was from a small seaport town where, not long before, two American ships had landed their passengers. Yet somehow, the news must have preceded the train, for its way was a triumphal procession. Near the road, groups of women and children and old men and partially convalescent soldiers were waving little American flags in response to others which, mingled with the tricolor, flew from the car windows. Long leaf to the United States, the voices outside the train were shouting, while inside more voices called back, Vive la France! From the long line of French cars was filled with a thousand of the new American troops on the way to their permanent war base. When the train had passed away from the villages, through the car windows also reverberated an odd combination of sounds made up of southern drawl, of Yankee twang, and the down-east and out-west dialects, for Pershing's regulars were drawn from every part of the United States. Some of them were singing Dixie, others, There'll be a hot time in the old town tonight, or a third group, We don't know where we are going, but we're on our way. But finally the train, entering one of the French towns, began slowing down. The soldiers were to be given refreshments from a Red Cross unit. This was one of the little towns which had been partly destroyed, though since cleared of the enemy. The depot had been struck by a shell and very badly damaged. The little French cathedral across the central square had lost its cross and Our Lady now stood with empty arms the figure of the Christ child having been broken away. At present, across this square, a pathetic little company was marching, carrying tiny American flags. They wore costumes of all colors and kinds, all degrees of vicissitude, yet somehow each one of the group of children had her own little bit of tricolor as well, so that the French and the American symbols of democracy were intimately mingled. When the train finally stopped, the children, as if from an unseen signal, kneeled reverently down in the dust of the old square. There were about twenty of them, all children save one. What does that mean? One of the soldiers in a car nearly opposite the square inquired of his companion. It means that those children are the war orphans of France and that they think we American soldiers have come to deliver them. If we needed anything more to make us want to fight like... He stopped abruptly, ashamed, perhaps, of the huskiness in his voice. The two young Americans, who were sitting beside each other, were both officers. The young man who had answered was the older and had dark hair, gray eyes, and a grave, rather severe face. He wore the uniform of a first lieutenant. The other man had light hair, blue eyes, and delicate features, and although at present his expression was also serious, it was a gay, boyish face without a look of responsibility. 
However, Hugh Kelly had lately graduated at West Point and received his commission as second lieutenant. Both soldiers remained quiet, however, while the other men were crowding out the windows and doors to receive their gifts of food from French and American Red Cross nurses and to talk to the French children, who were now coming up close to the cars. The attention of them both had been attracted by the appearance of a little French girl, the leader of the procession, who had come up near their window. She was not alone, but leading a French soldier by the hand. The man was slight and dark, although one could see only the lower part of his face, as the upper part was bandaged. The little girl, who must have been about ten or eleven, made an expressive gesture with her hand, touching her head and suggesting a wound. She wished her new acquaintances to understand that whatever might be said, her companion would comprehend nothing. He has been hurt, my officer, she said, almost with a slight expression of pride. Although not trusting themselves to speak, almost simultaneously the two Americans put their hands into their pockets, drawing out all the small money they possessed at the moment. But the French girl shook her head. We are not beggars, my captain and I. We have come to say bonjour to the American troops. She spoke in French. Then, seeing that the young officers continued to thrust their money toward her, she accepted it finally with a little graceful gesture, and nodding a friendly farewell, went on along the line of cars gazing into each window in equally interested fashion, and still leading her officer by the hand. He went without resisting, while now and then she spoke to him gently as one would to a beloved child. Lieutenant Hugh Kelly drew in his breath in a faint-hearted whistle. Some poor French chap who has lost his mind or his memory, or both, and is living in one of the nearby hospitals. I suppose the little French girl is an orphan and they are somehow trying to make things up to each other. Well, I might as well confess, Lieutenant. I'll not forget that child or that poor fellow soon. Maybe our own men. Oh, cut it out, Hugh. Lieutenant Martin answered. It is one of the fortunes of war. But that was an interesting little French girl. There's something about her one will remember. See, they have stopped now and are talking to Miss Davis and her friends. For it was true that in a small compartment, separated from the rest of the long train, was a small group of American Red Cross nurses, which included Nona Davis, Barbara Thornton, and the two nurses with whom Nona had worked in Italy, Molly Drew and Agatha Burton. Their presence on the soldiers' train was due to an accident. Their Red Cross ship, which had arrived at a French port at nearly the same time the American soldiers' transport, had failed to make proper arrangements with the French authorities. As a matter of fact, the Red Cross ship got in several days before she was expected, and there was no transportation facilities to take the nurses and doctors to the various hospital stations at which they expected to work. Therefore, a few of them were obliged to travel whenever any opportunity presented. Lieutenant John Martin had been right. It was Nona Davis who had first discovered the little French girl and her companion just outside their window looking in at them with the same expression of friendly interest she had shown the American officers. After the first sensation of shocked surprise which the young Frenchman occasioned, Nona smiled and began talking to the little girl. 
Would you mind telling me your name? Mine is Nona Davis, and I am a Red Cross nurse on my way to one of the new hospitals. The child nodded, showing that she understood Nona's French, which was fairly good after her past experience in France. Jean Barber, and this is Monsieur Le Capitan. My friend has no other name now, for he has forgotten his old one. The little French girl returned gravely, yet cheerfully, for in a way she had grown too accustomed to tragedies to be overwhelmed by them. Besides, Jean had the gallantry of her race. Whatever she might suffer, one smiled before strangers. You see, he remembers nothing about himself, neither his family nor where he has come from, and I, I too was alone, until we found each other. Jean still had the French officer's hand, and he clung to her without speaking, as if she only gave him a hold on earth. Otherwise, his mind wandered into what dim fancies, what tragic memories no one could guess. But while this conversation was taking place, Barbara Thornton had crowded up beside Nona and was gazing at the little French girl through dimmed eyes. Molly Drew was also looking out her window. Jean was a typical little French girl with wide-open dark eyes and heavy lashes, a sallow, colorless skin, bright red lips, and a slender, pointed chin. She now glanced from Nona to Barbara, and her expression became puzzled and sympathetic. She did not appreciate that she and her companion were the cause of the American Mademoiselle's tears, but wondered what was making her unhappy. Jean believed Barbara a young girl at this first sight of her. The truth was that Barbara had been fighting alternate stages of regret at having left home and of being glad she was coming to France, every half hour or so since her departure. But she had been more often miserable than happy, and Barbara resented unhappiness. Moreover, she had no one to confide in, since Nona, who was her only intimate friend in their Red Cross unit, had intensely disapproved of her returning to France. As nearby as she had been able to have a confidant, Barbara had made one of Molly Drew, as the two girls were sufficiently alike in temperament to feel drawn to each other. But as Barbara had just suffered a particularly deep wave of homesickness in the past ten minutes, the little French girl with her thin, half-starved look and her smiling eyes and the utter pathos of the man accompanying her had unnerved her. Is Mademoiselle ill? Is there anything I can do? Jean asked with entire seriousness. In the past month, she had grown accustomed to being useful to a great many people. She ran errands at a convalescent hospital where they were keeping certain of the soldiers who had no homes and no families to whom they could be returned. These soldiers had become the permanent wards of France. It was in this hospital Jean had found her captain. In response, Barbara could only shake her head helplessly. She was glad to have Nona and Molly distracting the little girl's attention by the gift of a box of candy, which had been a farewell present. While they did this, she was studying the French officer. It was strange how one was able to see he had been a gallant gentleman and a soldier of France in spite of his misfortune. There was something in his appearance which fairly haunted Barbara. He hung his head now, and every movement of his body was uncertain. Yet in the once slender, graceful figure, 
the small, well-shaped head, the hands and feet, one could see that Jean's officer had been a man of breeding and distinction. Why don't his own people look for him? Surely something should be done, Barbara murmured, almost indignantly. Jean, you must do your best to help your captain find his friends. There must have been some mark upon him, his number, the uniform of his regiment. But before Jean could reply, the train upon which the American soldiers and the four Red Cross nurses were traveling began pulling away from the station, and Jean stood waving farewell. During the entire experience, Agatha Burton had remained quiet and uninterested. She was a surprisingly calm and self-possessed person. Several times since her own introduction to Agatha, Barbara had recalled Bianca's unexpected speech in her drawing room. Barbara occasionally felt she agreed with Bianca. However, she did not intend to be prejudiced against anyone, and Agatha certainly had tried to be kind and considerate of her, more so than Nona, who was her old friend. Agatha had a fashion of doing one small, unexpected favors. It was almost as if she deliberately intended to make you like and trust her. Would you mind telling me something of Madame Castaigne? Molly Drew asked, after the slight pause which usually follows a train's leaving a station. As she is to have charge of the new American hospital where we are to work, I am interested. Is she difficult to work under? I feel a little afraid of her. She seems to be so wonderful herself. Nona smiled and shook her head. Oh, don't feel afraid of Madame Castaigne, although I confess that Mildred Thornton, Mrs. Thornton's sister-in-law, and Barbara and I were very much so in the days when we just met Eugenia on our first trip to Europe for the Red Cross nursing. She had not married then, but Madame Castaigne has been through a great deal since. About a year or more after our work in Europe, she married a French officer, Captain Henry Castaigne. He was a member of the old nobility, but too democratic in his ideas to use his title. He has since disappeared or is either dead or a prisoner in Germany. I don't think Madame Castaigne knows, but she has kept on just the same with her hospital work and has been helping to organize the new hospitals for our American soldiers in France. Eugenia has a great deal of money, and except what she uses for her husband's mother, she is devoting everything she has to the Red Cross. I only hope we may not find her too much changed. But Nona stopped talking because of an interruption. Someone had just come to the door of their compartment and knocked, and Barbara was opening it. Outside stood two figures, Lieutenant John Martin and his companion, Lieutenant Hugh Kelly. The first officer's manner betrayed the impression that, although intending to be polite, he was greatly bored. As a matter of fact, he believed that women and girls had no part in a soldier's life and except that men were necessary for other work. Even Red Cross nurses were superfluous. But by chance, Lieutenant Martin and Nona Davis had a slight previous acquaintance. Lieutenant Martin was a native of Georgia, but had been educated at the Charleston Military Academy before going to West Point. In Charleston, he had known some friends of Nona's and had been introduced to her, meeting her, perhaps only a few times afterward. 
For even as a boy, Jack Martin had been supposed to be either very shy or very disdained of girls. He did not seem to have the least natural interest in them, yet he really knew almost nothing of women, having been brought up by a bachelor uncle who was himself a soldier, and this may have accounted for his ungraciousness. Both he and Nona were surprised, upon seeing each other, into acknowledging their former acquaintance. Neither really intended it. Afterward, Lieutenant Martin had really regretted the accidental meeting, since it had drawn him into situations a little like the present one. Hugh Kelly and he were on the railroad platform when the sight of four American Red Cross nurses standing together and apparently waiting to take the same train had attracted their attention. Yet introducing Hugh had been the real complication. He could scarcely be accused of disliking girls. However, he continued to stand at the door of the compartment waiting for Lieutenant Martin as his superior officer to open the conversation and explain their presence. I, we, Lieutenant Martin began stiffly, and then stopped, as if he never were to go on. Then he turned to the younger man. Do, Kelly, speak for us both, won't you? Give an excuse for our appearance. For if you are not an Irishman, with that name of yours, your ancestors surely were. Hugh Kelly laughed. Oh, the situation isn't so serious. Please don't be alarmed. It is only that Lieutenant Martin is so in the habit of issuing commands lately that he does not know how to ask a favor. And it's a favor I be after asking, Hugh continued, breaking into a fairly poor imitation of the Irish brogue, somewhat to Molly Drew's amusement. You see, I have been feeling rather homesick for the past few hours, so I mustered up courage to ask our colonel if Lieutenant Martin and I could come in here to talk to you. I told him, Miss Davis, hope you don't mind, that you and Lieutenant Martin were old childhood friends. Kind of boy and girl business. You know the kind. So the colonel said we might come if I brought Martin along, and if we did not mention the fact to any of the other fellows in our car for fear of starting a riot in your direction. So I dragged Martin with me. Hugh ended with a perfectly deliberate intention of confusing his superior officer perhaps in revenge for past severities. Then he dropped down into a seat between Barbara Thornton and Molly Drew. I say, isn't this good luck? Anyhow, it is more than I deserve, he concluded boyishly. Lieutenant Martin took a place beside Nona. He appeared really more uncomfortable than necessary. I should like to court Marshal Kelly for that speech, Miss Davis. How can I possibly talk to you with such a beginning? End of chapter 3 Read by Melissa MacArthur November 15, 2021